0: Chapter 23 of The Million Dollar Suitcase by Alice McGowan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Million Dollar Suitcase, Chapter 23 A Bit of Silk. I must admit that when Worth and Barbara walked up and found me talking to Ina Vanderman, I felt caught dead to rights. The girl gave me one long, steady look. I was afraid of Barbara Wallace's eyes. Then and there I relinquished all idea of having her help in this inquiry. She could have done it much better than I, attracted less attention, but no matter. The awkward moment went by, however. I heaved a sigh of relief as they carried their ferns on into the clubhouse, and Mrs. Vanderman left me with gracious good-byes. I had the luck to cover my first inquiry by getting a lift into town from Mrs. Ormsby, young wife of the President of the First National. Alone with me in her little electric, she answered every question I cared to put, and said she would be careful to speak to no one of the matter. Three others I caught on the wing, as it were, busy at Blossom Festival affairs. The Fete only one day off now, things were moving fast. I glimpsed Dr. Bowman downtown and thought he rather carefully avoided seeing me. His wife was taking no part. The word went that she was not able but when I called at what had been the Wallace and was now the Bowman home I found the front door open and two ladies in the hall. One of them, Laura Bowman herself, came flying out to meet me, or rather it seemed to stop me with a face of dismay. "'My mother's here, Mr. Boyne.' Her hand was clammy cold. She'd been warned of me and my errand. I don't want to take you through that way. I stood passive and let her do the saying. "'Around here,' she faltered. "'We can go in at the side door.' We skirted the house by a narrow walk. She was leading the way by this other entrance, when, spread out over its low step, blocking our progress, I saw a small Japanese woman ripping up a satin dress. "'Let us pass, Umi.' "'Wait, we can talk as well here,' I checked her. We moved on a few paces out of earshot of the girl, but before I could put my questions she began with a sort of shattered vehemence to protest that Thomas Gilbert's death was suicide. It was, Mr. Boyne. Anybody who knew the scourge Thomas had been to those he must have loved in his queer, distorted way, and any one who loved them could believe he might take his own life. You speak freely, Mrs. Bowman," I said. Then you hated the man? Oh, I did! For years past I've never heard of a death without wondering that God took other human beings and let him live. Now that he's killed himself it seems dreadful to me that suspicion should be cast on—' Mrs. Bowman,' I interrupted. Thomas Gilbert's death was murder. All persons who could have had motive or might have had opportunity to kill him will be under suspicion, till the investigation clears them of it. I'm now ascertaining the whereabouts of Ina Vanneman that evening. A shudder went through her. She looked at me feelingly, twisting her hands together in the way I remembered. Despite her distress, she was very simple and accessible. She gave me no resistance, admitted her absence from the Thornhill house at about the time the party was ready to start for San Francisco—Edwards, of course. I got nothing new here. She seemed thankful enough to go into the house when I released her. I lingered a moment to have a word with the little Japanese woman on the step. How long you work this place? Two hours afternoon, every day, ducking and giggling like a mechanical toy. Just a piece worker, not a regular servant. Pretty dress. I touched the satin on the step. Whose? Mine. Grinning, she spread a breath out over her knees. Lady no like any more. Mine. It was a peculiar shade of peacock blue, unless I was mistaken the one Mrs. Bowman had worn that night at Tate's. Hello, what's this? I bent to examine a small hole in the hem of that breath Umi was so delightedly smoothing. Oh, I think may may burn em, not like any more. There was a small round hole, just so a cigarette might have seared, or a bullet. Not can use, I said to Umi, indicating the injured bit. Cut that off give me." And I laid a silver dollar on the step. Giggling, the little brown woman snipped out the bit of hem and handed it to me. I glanced up from tucking it into my pocket and saw Laura Bowman's white face staring at me through the glass of that side entry door. A suggestive lead, certainly, but it's my way to follow one lead at a time. I went on to the Thornhill place. Everybody there would know my errand for though, with taste I could but admire, Ina had put no name of any member of the family on her list, she of course expected me to call on them, and would never have let her sisters leave the country club without a warning. The three were just taking their hats off in the hall when I arrived. I did my questioning there, not troubling to take them separately. Cora and Ernestine, a well-bred pair of Ina's, without her pep perhaps a shade less good-looking, made their replies with none of the usual flutter of feminine curiosity and excitement, then went on in the living-room. Skeet, of course, was as practical and brief as a sensible boy. "'I don't know whether she's fit to see you,' she said when I spoke of her mother, and on the instant Ina Vanderman's clear, high voice came down the stair. "'Bring Mr. Boyne up, now!' Skeet stepped aside for me to pass. I suppose I looked as startled as I felt, for on my way to the house I had seen Mrs. Vanderman drive past toward town. I stood there at a loss and finally said, aimlessly, ''Your sister thinks it's all right?'' ''My sister!'' Skeet wrinkled her brows at me and glanced to where the twins were in sight in the living room. ''That was mother herself who called you!'' All the way up the stairs, Skeet following, I was trying to swing my rather heavy wits around to take advantage of this new development. So far, Ina Vandeman's voice, imitated by Barbara Wallace and recognized by Chung and Jim Edwards, possibly by Worth, had been my lead in this direction. If more than one woman spoke in that voice, where would it take me? I'd got no adjustment before I was ushered into a large, dim room and confronted by a figure in a reclining chair by the window. Here, in spite of years and illness, were the same good looks and thoroughbred courage that seemed to characterize the women of this family. Mrs. Thornhill greeted me in Ina Vanderman's very tones, a little high-pitched for real sweetness, full of a dominating quality, and she showed a composure I had not expected. To Skeet, standing by, watching to see that her mother didn't overdo in talking to me, she said, "'Dear, go downstairs. Jane's left her dinner on the range and gone to the grocery. You look after it while she's away." When we were alone she lay back in her chair, eyes closed, or seemingly so, and made her statement. She'd been in her daughter's room only twice between the reception and that daughter's going away. But the room was full of other people. A glimmer between lashes. I could give you the names of those others. Thank you, I said. Mrs. Vanderman has already done that. I've seen them all." You've seen them all? A long, furtively drawn breath. Then her eyes flashed open and fixed themselves on me. Relief was there, yet something stricken, as they traveled over me from my gray thatch to my big feet. Now, Mrs. Thornhill, I said, aside from those two visits to your daughter's room, where were you that evening? A slow flush crept into her thin cheeks. The unreadable eyes that were traveling over Jerry Boyne stopped suddenly and held him with a quiet stare. "'I understood it was my daughter's movements on that evening you wished to trace, Mr. Boyne,' she said slowly. "'It would be difficult to trace mine. Really, I had so much on my hands with the reception and inefficient help.' She broke off, her eyes never leaving my own, even as she added smoothly, "'It would be very, very difficult.' there is an effect in class almost like the distinction of race. These women spoke a baffling language. Their psychology was hard for me. If there was something hid up amongst them that ought to be uncovered by diplomacy and delicate indirection, it would take a smarter man than the one who stood in my number-tens to do it. Mrs. Thornhill, I said, you did leave the house. You went to Mr. Gilbert's study. The shot that killed him left you a nervous wreck. So that you couldn't hear a tire blowout without reenacting in your mind the scene of that murder. You'll talk now. You think I will? Talk to you? Very low and quiet, eyes once more closed. Why not? It's got to come, here in your own home, with me, or I'll have to put you where you'll be forced to answer questions. Oh, you threaten me, do you? Her eyes flashed open and looked at me, hard as flint. Very well. I'll answer no questions as to what happened on the evening of Thomas Gilbert's death, except in the presence of Worth Gilbert, his son." My retirement down the Thornhill stairs, made with such dignity as I could muster, was in fact a panic flight. Halfway, Cora Thornhill all but finished me by looking out from the living room and calling in Ina Vanderman's voice, "'Ernie, show Mr. Boyne out, won't you?' Ernestine completed the job when she answered, in Ina Vanderman's voice, also. Yes, dear, I will. It was only the scraps of me that she swept out through the front door. I stood on the porch and mopped my brow. Across there at the Gilbert place, was Worth himself, charging around the grounds with Vandeman and a lot of other decorators, pruning shears in hand, going for a thicket of bamboos that shut off the vegetable garden. At one side, Barbara stood alone, looking, it seemed to me, rather depressed. I made for her. She met me with. I know what you've been doing. Skeet came to me about it while Ina was phoning home from the country club. Well, she should worry. I've just finished with her list. Got an unbreakable alibi." She would have, Barbara said listlessly. She wasn't at the study that evening. Huh. I worked on your tip that she was." Barbara had pulled off the little stitched hat she wore, yet the deep flush on her cheeks was neither from sun nor an afternoon's hard work. It and the quick straightening of her figure, the lift of her chin, had to do with me and my activities. Mr. Boyne the black eyes came around to me with a flash. Do you suspect me of trying to pay off a spite on Ina Vandermann? Good Lord, no! I exploded. And anyhow, I've just found that what you imitated and Chung recognized might as well have been the mother's voice as the daughter's.' "'Yes,' she assented. Any one of the family, under stress of emotion. Then suddenly--" And why do I tell you that? You'll not get it from what I do. I ought never to have mixed up my kind of mental work with other people's. I'd promised my own soul that I would never make another deduction. Then Worth came and asked me, that night at Tate's, "I might say now that I never will any more." She broke off, storm in her eyes and in her voice as she finished. "But I suppose if he wanted me to again, I'd make a little fool of myself for his amusement, just as I did this time and have done all those other times. I'll not ask anything more of you, Barbara," I said to her hastily, confused and abashed before the glimpse she'd given me of her heart. "'Except that I beg you to stay good friends with Cummings. That man hates Worth. If you turned him down now, say for the ball or anything like that, he'd be twice as hard for us to handle. Keep him a passive enemy instead of an active one, as long as he seems to find it necessary to hang around Santa Isabel.' You know what's holding Mr. Cummings here, don't you?" She glanced somberly past the bamboo-gatherers to where we saw a gray corner of the study with its pink ivy-geranium blossoms atop. Mr. Cummings is held here by two steel bolts, the bolts on those study doors. Until he finds how they can be moved through an inch of planking he'll not leave Santa Isabel. She'd put it in a nutshell and I couldn't let him beat me to it. I'd got to get the jump on him." End of chapter 23